Good morning. Today's reading from the Word of God comes from Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Please follow along in your own Bibles, on the screen behind me, or listen as I read the scriptures. Once again, that's Ruth chapter 4, verses 1 through 12. Following the reading, I invite you to respond in worship with the singing of the doxology. At that time, children are invited to join kids' crew through the door on your right. Now hear the word of the Lord. Meanwhile, Boaz went up to the town gate and sat down there, just as the guardian redeemer he had mentioned came along. Boaz said, come over here, my friend, and sit down. So he went over and sat down. Boaz took ten of the elders of the town and said, sit here, and they did so. Then he said to the guardian redeemer, Naomi, who has come back from Moab, is selling the piece of land that belonged to our relative Elimelech. I thought I should bring the matter to your attention and suggest that you buy it in the presence of these seated here and in the presence of the elders of my people. If you will redeem it, do so. But if not, tell me so I will know, for no one has the right to do it except you, and I am next in line. I will redeem it, he said. Then Boaz said, on the day you buy the land from Naomi, you also acquire Ruth the Moabite, the dead man's widow, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property. At this, the guardian redeemer said, then I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I cannot do it. Now, in earlier times in Israel, for the redemption and transfer of property to become final, one party took off his sandal and gave it to the other. This was the method of legalizing transactions in Israel. So the guardian redeemer said to Boaz, buy it yourself, and he removed his sandal. Then Boaz announced to the elders and all the people, Today you are witnesses that I have bought from Naomi all the property of Elimelech, Kilion, and Malon. I have also acquired Ruth the Moabite, Malon's widow, as my wife, in order to maintain the name of the dead with his property, so that his name will not disappear from among his family or from his hometown. Today you are witnesses. Then the elders and all the people at the gate said, We are witnesses. May the Lord make the woman who is coming into your home like Rachel and Leah, who together built up the family of Israel. May you have standing in Ephrathah and be famous in Bethlehem. Through the offspring the Lord gives you by this young woman, may your family be like that of Perez, whom Tamar bore to Judah. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Good morning, church. My name is Brandon, one of the pastors here. So glad to be worshiping with you this morning. And again, a special welcome back to our college students or welcome to the North Shore for the first time to our college students. We're so glad that you all are here. Uh, one of the things that we like to do at the beginning of our sermons is just take a moment to pause and be quiet before the Lord and invite God to speak to us with whatever we brought into the room this morning, whether you have something going on in your mind, you're hoping for some word of wisdom about something going on in your life, or you just need a moment to be quiet. Some of us have just been running around, running around, doing all kinds of things, preparing for back to school uh, for ourselves or our families, and we maybe just need a minute to just like stop and see where our mind's at. So I'd invite you to do that, and I will open us with a word of prayer in a moment. 
God, we thank you that you speak to us through your word and through the people that you have placed in this story of scripture to teach us more about who you are and how deeply you love us and the calling that you have on our lives to love others in profound and deep ways just as Christ has loved us in profound and deep ways. So this morning we ask that you would challenge us, that you would nudge us toward yourself in whatever ways that looks like for us, and that you would give us opportunities to remember and live that out as we go into our communities and our regular lives this week. We offer this time to you as an act of our worship. May we have ears to hear. We love you. Amen. Well, most of you know that I spent the last couple of months on sabbatical. I've been back almost a month now, which is crazy to me. Um, The first book that I read on my sabbatical was called A Book That Takes Its Time. Has anyone read this book or heard of this book? It's a lovely book. It's written by a couple of Scandinavians. And early in the book, one of the writers shared a story about a vacation that she took in India. She said it was her first time in India. She was staying in a hotel just right in the middle of Delhi. And inside the hotel, there was a tropical garden paradise. It was this beautiful garden. There was a clear pool. There were cocktails and palm trees and sunbeds. It was amazing. And on her first day of vacation, she was hanging out at the pool, and she got this wild idea that maybe she should go outside of the hotel and see what life in India was really like. So she, she like, peers out of the hotel, but the moment that she steps out of the hotel gate... She saw a hot and dusty city. There was a line of rickshaw drivers trying to get her attention, asking for her to hire them. And the city intimidated her, so she shut, back the, shut down the gate. She ran back to the garden where she felt safe. Well, the second day, she still couldn't bring herself to leave the garden paradise, but she stayed by the pool, and she wasn't super happy about it. She knew that there was something out there that she was meant to experience. So on the third day, she kind of inched outward. She, she went to the reception desk of the hotel, and she signed up for a group tour so that she could see a little bit of the city in a way that felt kind of safe for her. And then the day after that, she worked up the courage to hire a taxi and go visit a temple on her own. And on the very last day of the trip, she walked out to the line of rickshaw drivers outside the hotel, and she asked for a ride through the market, and she absolutely loved it. She loved feeling a little bit lost in a new city. And when she came back to the hotel and she wrote about that experience, she wrote this. She said, I realized that if I wanted to see more of India than just a swimming pool, I had to get out of the garden. I had to get out of the garden. So I read that early in my sabbatical, and so I had lots of time to think about it and mull over that story over the last few months. And as I reflected on my own life, I started to realize that over the last few years, with all the transitions that we've had to navigate as a church, learning how to be a lead pastor in the middle of everything that we've been through, trying to stay stay calm and safe in the middle of, of all of the upheaval that our world has experienced over the last couple of years, I had started to get stuck in my own kind of garden. For the last few years, I just haven't had a lot of mental margin to think about anything other than what's right in front of me. Can anyone relate to that? By the time I got to my sabbatical, my world had started to feel a little bit too small. I would work, and then I'd go home, and then I'd go to sleep, and then I would repeat. Now, don't get me wrong. I love working at this church. I'm not going anywhere. I love being in our community. I love my home. There's a lovely husband and two cats there. It's awesome. But before I got to sabbatical, I had gotten into the habit of working and then coming home and maybe recreating a little bit and socializing a little bit. But most of my life, it started to feel contained within just a few miles of my home and our church. And I started to realize that if I wanted to get to experience more of the world, I had to get out 
of the garden, I had to start to think outside of this box that I had put myself in. And not just physically. There are all kinds of mental gardens that I had gotten used to, bad habits that I had just accepted about my life and my relationships, patterns in my life that I would rather break free from to try to have something, try to try to try some new things that might have more life in them for me. So I shared the story with my husband, and he really resonated with it too. And, and, and we started to ask ourselves as a family, how do we start to think outside of our garden? How do we branch out? How do we branch out from what started to feel safe and comfortable about our lives, but, but maybe has started to feel a little bit too small? How do we move towards a bigger story? How do we lean in towards a bigger community? It's a, a live question in the Harrington household. We're having a lot of fun unpacking what that looks like for us. How do we think beyond ourselves? How do we take the next step in this next season of life? So what about you? Are there any gardens in your life that you might need to step out of? What parts of your life maybe started to feel a little bit too small, maybe a little bit too restrictive, maybe a little bit too myopically focused on the details of your own individual story to the point that maybe you can't even see much beyond it? What bigger version of life might God be inviting you into if you open the hotel gate and walked outside? Well, this morning, we are continuing our sermon series through the book of Ruth. This is our penultimate Sunday. We've been calling this series, Ruth, The Extraordinary Faithfulness of Ordinary People. And we've been taking a look at three main characters in this story, Naomi, Ruth, and Boaz. And they're all characters who left their gardens and allowed their lives to become about something much bigger than themselves. So I'd invite you, since you all brought your Bibles, I'd invite you to open up with me in your Bibles to the book of Ruth, chapter 4, to the passage that Amelia read for us a few minutes ago. So uh, while you're opening up in Ruth, chapter 4, I'll recap a little bit for those who are just joining us. So early in our story, we meet a very important character by the name of Naomi. So Naomi is originally from a place called Bethlehem. You probably heard of Bethlehem if you've been around the church. Naomi was from Bethlehem, but she moved to another land called Moab about 10 years earlier with her husband and her two sons. But in the first chapter of the book, tragedy strikes, and Naomi's husband and both of their sons die. So this character, Naomi, she's left in an incredibly vulnerable situation. Remember, women in that ancient world depended on the men in their life to provide for and protect them. And she's just been stripped of every male attachment that would bring her honor and worth and protection in that world. So it makes sense that Naomi would make the very hard decision to move back to her, her, her original home where she's from in Bethlehem, literally the only place where she might have a chance at survival. Now enter Ruth. Ruth was married to one of Naomi's dead sons. Except unlike Naomi, Ruth is from Moab, not from Bethlehem. Even so, when Naomi decides to return to, to Bethlehem, Ruth and Orpah, the other uh, widowed's daughter-in-law, they vow to go with her. And they're traveling, and they travel some distance, and after a while, Naomi, she's, she looks at her daughter's-in-law, and she insists, she says, I have to insist, you go back home, you go to Moab. She says, I, I don't have any more options. I have to go back home to survive, but you, 
you, you might have some other options. You can stay in your own land. You're still young enough to remarry. You could have some children. You, you could make a new life for yourselves among your own people in Moab. And Orpah, the other daughter-in-law, she agrees with Naomi, and with a lot of weeping, she kisses her mother-in-law goodbye, and she returns back home to Moab. But Ruth takes a different posture. Ruth decides to stay with Naomi and to go with her to Bethlehem. The Hebrew says that Ruth clung to Naomi, and that word for clinging, it translates to to be joined together, to keep close. Ruth clings to her mother-in-law, Naomi, and to Naomi's God. Why? Why would she do that? Well, she does it because Ruth sees herself as part of a bigger story, a story that's bigger than herself and hers, a story that is worth doing something hard for. It's the moment that you sit with a friend in the hospital after she's miscarried instead of just giving her space. It's the moment when, when you learn about the ways that injustice is showing up in your neighborhood and you decide to stand with the vulnerable, even when it costs you something. It's the moment when you encounter someone who's struggling with, with loneliness or anxiety and you ask how they're doing today and you listen and you follow up, even when those conversations are, are hard or tiring sometimes. Ruth chooses someone else. She chooses someone else even when it costs her something. She gives up everything. She gives up her extended family, her country, her home, her people, her own search for a husband, the faith of her ancestors. And as one scholar put it, in a world where life depended on men, Ruth committed herself to an old woman. She leaves the garden. And that's just chapter one. Then we move on to chapter two. Ruth and Naomi, they arrive together in Bethlehem, and it's during the barley season, and, and so Ruth goes out to, in the fields to find food, and she finds this wealthy man named Boaz, and she starts to gather leftover grain from his fields, which have been left over for the poor. But this wealthy landowner, Boaz, he's heard about Ruth. He's heard what she's done, this incredible sacrifice that she's made for her mother-in-law, and he has compassion on her. And instead of just giving her the scraps, he offers her additional food and protection. Well, it also just so happens that Boaz isn't just a wealthy Israelite man. He is a distant relative of Naomi's family. And Naomi realizes that there might be a chance that Boaz could actually marry Ruth, given the way that the Israelite laws were set up at the time. So we're going to take a minute and we're going to unpack those laws because they're central to how we can understand the next part of the story and because I know we all love talking about ancient Israelite litigation. So my husband and I have recently been updating our will, and, and uh, it's fascinating how many questions and contingencies and decision trees that we've been asked by our lawyer just to, to talk about making a plan for what happens when we die. So if you die and there are children in the home, who do the children go to? If the people that your children have gone to get divorced, who do they go to then? Do you want separate executors, healthcare proxies, financial proxies, or the same ones? If your executor dies before you, who's your backup? There are no stones unturned when you're planning for what happens after you die. Well, Israel also had complicated laws for what happened after someone died with similar contingencies and backups and decision trees, and that's what we're going to see unpacked in this package, so, or in this passage. So we're going to pause here, and we're going to see what the law said to do when a woman's husband died. And we're going to get a little bit technical, but I would encourage you to stick with me here. So in that day, there are a couple different parts of these kinds of laws. So in that day, if a man died 
one of his family members could play a very special role called a family redeemer, or in the Hebrew, it's called a goel. And there are two different kinds of family redeemers in the law. The first dealt with the redemption of the man's land. So what's going to happen with this guy's land after he dies? The land of Israel was very important to the Israelites. They, they believed that God had given them the land, that they had inherited the land from the Lord, and that it was theirs forever in perpetuity. So the land that my husband inherits from his father would go to our sons, and all of our future descendants would also have the right to inherit that land as well. It just continues on in our family line, which means that if the unthinkable happens and tragedy strikes like a, a famine or a death in the family, and our family can no longer support themselves on the land, then a close family member could come in and buy the land from us, and then allow us to keep living off of it, keep making income off of it, and then one day when we've gotten back on our feet, that relative could sell us back the land at cost. It's kind of cool how they would take care of each other like that. Does that all make sense? Okay, so that's the first part. There's an aspect of redeeming the land at play in the story of Ruth. There was also another type of redemption, and that had to do with continuing on the family line. So the family line, it was really super, super important to the community in that day that family lines would continue on. So the law would provide a contingency plan for what happened if a man died without any children. A family member, usually a brother of a childless deceased husband, could marry the widow that he left behind and produce an heir on behalf of his dead brother. I know that's super confusing, so I'm going to bring up a couple of volunteers to show you. So can I get my volunteers up here? Let's welcome our volunteers. Thanks, guys, for coming up here. Okay, so I need you to stand as, a, as couples, but I need the guys in the middle. All right. So we've got Josh and Mo, Addison and Alana. Let's thank them. All right. So I'm going to tell them what to do. I promised them that they didn't have to act very much, but they will act a little bit. Okay, so... Let's pretend for a minute that Josh and Addison are brothers. Both have married very well. They're living lovely, happy, happy lives. Neither couple has any children yet. One day, however, Addison is tragically killed on the job. Dun, dun, dun. And Alana's really sad. Especially because now she, she's just laughing at him. Oh. She, and now, especially now she's a childless widow. This leaves Alana in a particularly difficult spot because, as we've already said in that day and age, men were the sole breadwinners and protectors of the family. So the death of a husband is potentially deadly for the wife that he left behind. Not only that, but deceased ancestors were thought to live on in the lives of their descendants. So in ancient Israel, the worst fate that you can possibly imagine is dying without any children to carry on your legacy. Make sense? So they needed to produce an heir in order to provide for the woman's safety, in order for, to have someone to inherit their land, and in order to carry on the legacy of the husband who has died, which was an incredibly high value of the day. So if the deceased man had a brother, like Addison did, Josh here in our example, wave Josh, the brother would not only be expected, he would be legally obligated to go take Alana as a second wife in order to produce an heir. So Alana, come over and be Josh's second wife. <laughs> Josh would then keep Alana and any children that she gives birth to under his care until Alana's son becomes old enough to take over the family farm. Yes, this is polygamy, 
Yes, polygamy happened in ancient Israel, but it, it was never portrayed as the ideal. I, never, I didn't tell you that you had to play polygamous. <laughs> I omitted that detail. <laughs> it was never portrayed as the ideal. It was just something that the law made provisions for in a world like that one. You still with me? Okay, so that's the way that the law would typically work. Now, it's going to get even more complicated. When the deceased man doesn't have a brother or the brother also dies. So now you can see your fate, Josh. So Josh took Alana as a wife, and then a little while later, Josh also dies while fighting in a war, and Mo is so sad. Addison and Josh were brothers, remember? So let's say their dad is still alive. It would now be their dad's job to take Alana, and in this case, Mo as well, as his wives and produce an heir on behalf of his sons, Addison and Josh. If Addison is dead and Josh is dead and their dad is also dead, then technically, <laughs> these are all of the family tree, all of the contingencies, then technically another relative could come in and take uh, Alana and Mo as his wife and produce heirs by them. But it's more likely that they will die tragically an early death because no one legally has to claim them as their wives anymore. That's the story. Thank you guys. <laughs> This is their, their tragedy debut, tragic player, uh, actors here. Okay, so hopefully that made sort of some sense. It was very complicated, and there were all of these little things that they had to think about if someone died. Now, a, a quick aside, this kind of law, am I still in frame here? Okay, great. Um, so a quick aside, this kind of law might seem very backwards and primitive to us. Women didn't have a say in any of this. In fact, the conversation that we're about to witness in the book of Ruth, a bunch of men are deciding Ruth's future and they're not asking what she wants. They're not even letting her be in the room. And thankfully, large parts of our world have come a long way from that. But you have to remember that this was a very different time and a very patriarchal world. And even though it looks primitive to us, this kind of law was a giant step forward in that place and in that time. This is radical, empowering, pro-women legislation. You might consider it as a way that they could legally restore a woman's honor, her dignity. They could uh, restore her virtue. They could protect her from harm and poverty in a culture where a widowed, childless woman had no good options. So to recap, there are two kinds of redemption. There's the redemption of the land, and the redemption of the family line. And knowing this distinction is essential to understanding the play that Boaz is about to make in Ruth chapter 4. So turn back to Ruth chapter 4. Now we'll get into it. Boaz is Naomi's family member. Remember, he could potentially play the part of the family redeemer here for both the land and the family line, but he realizes that there is a closer relative than he is to Naomi, and he should check in with that closer relative first to make sure that that closer relative doesn't want to inherit the land uh, before him. So Boaz goes into Bethlehem, and he finds the closer relative, and he calls in a bunch of witnesses. I love how casual this scene is when he's like, Bo Boaz is like, hey, friends, sit down. Also, I'm bringing all these 10 witnesses to this conversation. He's got to have uh, imagined something was coming. So he, he gathers all of these witnesses. They sit down, they have a conversation. He presses the issue. And he says, you know that, that old woman, Naomi, who came back from Moab? Well, she's selling the land that belonged to her husband, Elimelech, who was our relative. So I thought I should speak to you about it, see if you wanted to redeem that land if you wish. If you want the land 
then buy it here in the presence of all of these witnesses. But if you don't want it, let me know because I'm next in line and I can redeem it after you. Okay, so there are a few interesting things that are happening here that we might not pick up at first. First, we are never told what this guy's name is, the closer family member. The writer just calls him something like Mr. So-and-so. The author deliberately seems to exclude this guy's name to cast him in a negative light. Second, so far, Boaz has only mentioned the first part of the redemption law, the land part. And he knows that this is going to seem like a great deal to Mr. So-and-so. Mr. So-and-so can get this land without really having to do anything for it. Everyone in town already knows that Naomi is past childbearing age. The man can buy the land for cheap. He can provide for the old woman while she's still alive. And after she dies, there's not going to be anyone else in her family line to pass the land on to. So Mr. So-and-so will get to keep the land and his sons will get to inherit it. It sounds like a great deal. Everything's coming up Mr. So-and-so. Plus, and this was important back then, if Mr. So-and-so says yes, he's going to look really good for being willing to take care of poor old widow Naomi. He gets to be the hero, plus cheap land. So Mr. So-and-so's like, okay, it'll be a huge sacrifice, but I'll totally do it. Except, of course, there's also the second part of the redemption law. Up until now, Boaz hasn't mentioned Ruth. But then he cleverly lays out the terms of the agreements. Now, of course, there is something else. When you buy the land, you also acquire Limelech's daughter-in-law, Ruth, and you have to marry her, and you have to produce heirs with her for her family line. Not only do you have to marry Ruth and have children in, with her, but they won't even be considered your kids. They'll be considered Elimelech's heirs on all the town records, and they will inherit Elimelech's land moving forward. Not you, not your sons, they will. Well, for Mr. So-and-so, that's a deal breaker. This is too big of a gamble. This is too far outside the garden. If Ruth gives birth to a son, the family redeemer who fathers her child will have to invest his own money in the upkeep of Elimelech's land and estate. He'll have to care for and raise Elimelech's heirs, and then all of that investment is going to go to Elimelech's line instead of his. No way. So Mr. So-and-so does what is within his legal right to do. He says, then I, I cannot redeem it because I might endanger my own estate. You redeem it yourself. I, I cannot do it. He walks away, not because he's cold or insensitive or unjust. He walks away because that's what made sense. He keeps his eye on protecting his own little story. He nurtures his own little garden, and no one would have blamed him for doing this. It was the most practical thing to do. There was nothing in the law that required this man to take on a Limelech's estate. He was too distant of a relative for that law to apply to him. Nothing would make that sacrifice worth it. And this, this only highlights the enormity of the sacrifice that Boaz is willing to make in marrying Ruth. Boaz is next in line, which means he's even further removed from the obligation to produce heirs for Limelech. But get this, he says yes anyway. And we like to imagine that the story of Ruth and Boaz was some epic love story in the Bible, and maybe it was. But honestly, it probably wasn't. Boaz is old enough that he might have already been married at that point. He might have had other kids at that point. We don't really know, but it's likely. 
What we do know is that he is willing to take on an enormous risk in marrying a Moabite woman on behalf of another man, potentially endangering his own estate. Why? Why would he do this? Well, Boaz saw himself as part of a larger story, a story that's bigger than him and his, a story that's bigger than this land or his own inheritance or his own name. What he puts above everything else is the well-being of these two widows, the honor of another man's family line, and the greater good of the whole community beyond his own garden. Boaz agrees to marry Ruth, to care for someone else in a way that costs. These three little characters, Ruth, Boaz, and Naomi, they're initially they're just trying to survive. But they found themselves thinking beyond their own gardens, their own little stories, their own little company towards something and someone bigger than themselves, toward God and the people of God. And we're going to see this next week. Ruth and Boaz's story becomes the turning point in the story that leads us to Jesus. The Jesus who a thousand years later would be born in that same town of Bethlehem to another refugee family who's fleeing their land to survive. The Jesus who did not stay myopically focused on his own story or his own legacy or on protecting what was his, but instead he shared his inheritance with us and called us co-heirs in the family of God. The Jesus who, who one day found himself in a garden talking with God, begging not to leave, pleading to stay with what was comfortable, but in the end he chose to leave that garden and move on toward a bigger story. The story of the cross and the empty tomb, not just to demonstrate his love for you, but his love for all of us, and for all the world, and for all creation, for the redemption of everyone who's come before us, and the redemption of everyone who's come after us. Jesus left the garden of Gethsemane to go toward the harder road, the risky road of death, but it was a death that would lead to resurrection and new life, not just for himself, but for us. And he did it in a way that cost him something. When we cling to him, when we learn his way, when we follow him toward that new life, the promise is that we will experience something deeper and more rich and full than if we'd stayed tucked away in our own little garden. So what can this look like for us today? How do we start to think beyond ourselves and our own stories and leave the garden? Well, the first step is this. Cling to Jesus like Ruth clung to Naomi. Follow him out of the garden of your own little story into something that will change you and will change the world, even when you can't see what's on the other side of the gate yet. Leave behind the land of Moab and all of the idols that we have there and follow Christ to and through the cross and the empty tomb. Let him bring you into the bigger story. And then start to look around and see how you can be part of the redemption of those around you. Everywhere we look, Everywhere we look, there are people whose lives we can influence for good if we could be willing to step out of our own stories and into theirs as agents of God's redemption. You don't even have to go very far outside of your garden to join in the story of God. If you're like, like the woman uh, that I mentioned in the beginning who traveled to India, it's okay to start thinking a little bit closer to home at first. You can inch your way outside. Boaz started in his own field, and he started to think sacrificially about someone that he found on his own property. So maybe a first step for you is asking, what does it look like for me to to think more deeply about how to love and serve the people who are in my immediate orbit? 
How can I love my colleagues better, my peers better, my students better? How can I care for my roommate, my spouse, my kids in radical, redemptive ways? Who is in my field who could use some extra care today, some extra attention? I've been seeing this happen in my own home recently. So like lots of women, I was socialized to take on a lot of extra domestic care tasks in our home. Even though this wasn't what was modeled to me growing up, even though my husband and I both work full time, even though we're egalitarians and we want to seek an equitable partnership in our domestic life, we've discovered that over time, I just naturally step in and do more at home because that's how lots of women like me are socialized in our society. And so as a couple, my husband and I have unintentionally ended up with an imbalance in our day-to-day -day domestic life. I am just naturally taking on too much. And my husband has seen that, and he wants to share that load with me. So a few months ago, he expressed a desire to help me redeem my time so that I don't take on so much on my own, so that I'm not doing so many household tasks on my own. So he's been proactively looking for and learning ways that he can take over some of the regular life stuff that I have just subconsciously taken on over the years. For him, that's meant learning to think a little bit differently. And for me, it's meant letting go of some control. And it might sound like a little thing, but as he's stepped in more to our domestic life, I'm finding that I have more margin in my brain to think about my interests and more time in my calendar to pursue them and to get outside of my own garden. And it means the world to me. So maybe for you, thinking beyond yourself means having an honest conversation with your partner or your roommates or, or your coworkers about how you can use your power, your love, your energy, your gifts to help redeem something about their life. Or, or maybe you're ready for a further nudge outside the garden, and a next step for you is toward deeper involvement in our church here at Anchor Bay. Maybe it's time to think about joining a regular ministry team if you're not already part of a regular ministry team. Maybe to start thinking about giving a portion of your finances more regularly to the life of our church so that you can be a deeper part of the story that we are telling here at Anchor Bay. You know, if you're new with us, one of the things that we, we like to tell people when they're new and they're checking us out is just for the first, like, three months, just come on Sundays, maybe join a life group, start to get to know the community a little bit, but don't feel the pressure to jump in any deeper than that. But the reality is that if we're sticking around after a few months and we haven't started to take some next steps toward deeper life in our community, we are going to start missing out on the life that God has called us to live in community through giving and serving and caring for one another beyond Sunday mornings. So maybe it's time for you this fall to con consider taking that next step, even when it costs you something, even when it might cost you some extra time or energy or finance finances. Or maybe you're ready for that rickshaw ride. Maybe you're ready to take a bigger step even outside of that garden into something a little bit more risky and unknown. Maybe it's time for you to think about the bigger community than our little fellowship here on the North Shore. As a church, we consistently try to mourn the reality of racism in our world, but if you're anything like me, it's easy to hear about these realities and never ask myself how my own privilege might be part of the problem. Doing that is risky. I might have to step outside the garden of my pride or my defenses. I might have to admit that I am part of a broken system that actually benefits me. So what if I started asking how things could change and then I did something to change my own life? so that it could be part of the solution. 
In our church, we talk a lot about supporting foster families. We, we pray for foster families. But what if God is nudging you to go through foster training yourself? Or if that's not your calling, what if God is calling you to just get to know a foster family personally so, so that you can see how to support them up close? Take that rickshaw ride. Most of you know we have an outreach meal at our church where every month we provide a meal to those in need in our community. What if you volunteered this month to make food and to serve it so that you could have some conversations with the people who benefit from the meal, get to know their stories, ask them what they love, what they need beyond the outreach meal so that we can support them beyond the monthly meal and then follow up with some action. Asking those questions is risky and it might require something of us something different from what we've gotten used to, but I believe that following Jesus, it means following him out of the garden into a bigger story, a story that isn't just about my own redemption and my own inheritance, but about a bigger and grander kind of redemption that God is writing into the whole world. I love how writer Rachel Held Evans put it in her book, Inspired. She said, the gospel means every small story is part of a sweeping story. Every ordinary life part of an extraordinary movement. God is busy making all things new, and the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus has opened that work to everyone who wants in on it. The church is not a group of people who believe all the same things. The church is a group of people caught up in the same story with Jesus at the center. Let's pray. God, would you be the center of our story? Our stories as individuals, our story here as a church, our story as the global church. We ask that you would give us spirit-led courage to follow you into places in our lives that are unknown, but that you might be inviting us to take that deeper step into. We pray that you would show us those places, especially as we walk out of here this week, that you would call those things to mind that have maybe gotten too complacent or too small and invited us into something deeper and truer and richer, something that is part of your story instead. We love you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.